0: Welcome to the Locking Castle podcast. This Sunday morning's teaching is part of the Bible in two years. Hello, good morning. You can hear me at the back, okay? Yeah, awesome. Um, Well, good morning, church, and Happy New Year to all of you. Um, I'm going to dive straight in because time is of the essence. So, um... Happy days. (laughs) So, Bible in two years, um... I'll just give a quick overview and reminder that we are reading through the scriptures in two years, and on a Sunday, the speaker can choose one of the passages that we've read um, and decide to speak on it. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, the reading on the Sunday. I'm going to land on today's reading, um, however. And... Andy mentioned this last week, and Emily's um, talked about it today, about the flexibility of reading the scriptures. And, you know, we, we, we have to be flexible. We might not always be able to read them every day, but we don't want people feeling guilty or ashamed. Um, it's not always straightforward and easy, but as has already been said, do your best and do what you can. Um, you know, and the scriptures, and especially for the youth here, the scriptures aren't always straightforward. And I don't want us to feel disheartened as we read through them. They can be strange. The Scriptures can be challenging and confusing at times, and that's okay. Um, We don't have to understand everything. That's why we're reading in a community so we can discuss, debate, disagree as well. Andy said we need to disagree well. That's going to come up and happen. Um, And we need to do that together, and that's why this is such an amazing pursuit we are on. And I will refer to the story of Scripture today as the drama or the story of God. And it's a story that we need to be entrenched in, because if we're not entrenched in the story of God, that we're we're going to be captured by another story that isn't going to be as life-giving as the story of God. And I'll talk about this a bit later towards the end. So what I'm going to do is give an overview of what we have been reading this week, so don't worry if you haven't read it, as I'll catch you up now. So bear with me as we go through Genesis, because a lot is going on in the early chapters. In Genesis 1, we're introduced to this creator God who creates the universe and everything in it. Six times the phrase good is mentioned as God reflects on his creation. And then in verse 31, God says very good after creating humanity. This very good humanity was set apart from the rest of creation by being made in the image of God. A people to literally image him. Humanity are these divine representatives who are going to reign and rule with God continuing to faithfully steward the creation. If you ever feel you're not worthy, um, be reminded of that, that you are made in the image of God. And I think is a good reminder for us of how we should view other people as well. And then in Genesis 2, it con- uh, contextualizes this, sorry. When the Lord God created Adam and Eve, and both of these were acts kind of like priest-like figures in the temple of God, the Garden of Eden, the place where heaven and earth meet together. Eden literally means pleasure or delight in the original language, and if we were to fast forward to the book of Numbers, we would read of priests being commanded to cultivate and to keep the tabernacle, and in the Hebrew text, the same words are uttered in Genesis 2 to Adam, to work and take care of the garden, the original holy of holies, where the presence of the Lord dwelt with humanity." Now, this is important because Christians can, you know, we can often spend so much time debating and getting bogged down by questions and details in the early chapters of Genesis. And I certainly was one of them when I was a new Christian. And we can often miss the deeper picture of what is actually going on. This idyllic garden came with only one command from the Lord God. God. And I said this earlier um, in the early service about we can often see God as being stingy with all of these commands. But here in Eden, he only gives them one thing not to do. Everything else they're free to do. And God says you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Happy days, right? Okay, should be an easy one for Adam and Eve. One thing they can't do. Let's continue the story and see how it goes. Genesis chapter 3, we're now introduced to another character in the drama of God, the serpent, or snake, who was more crafty than all the other creatures the Lord God had made. The serpent was originally a member of God's divine council, and we know as we go through the story of scripture that um, he's referred to as a fallen angel or the Satan. And this serpent deceived Eve into believing that she and Adam will not die if they eat from the fruit, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but that only their eyes will be open to good and evil. And they unfortunately succumbed to the serpent's temptations and disobeyed the one command the Lord had given them. They failed already. But the mercy and justice of God are seen here as he clothes Adam and Eve's nakedness, a consequence of their eyes being opened and feeling ashamed, which is the result of sin. Sin has that effect. It makes us feel ashamed of ourselves often. And God also gives a stern promise that this serpent's head will one day be crushed. And this moment, often referred to or known as the fall, was a consequence that all subsequent humanity will experience. As a punishment, God exiles Adam and Eve from the garden where they no longer have access to the tree of life. No access to the tree of life meant what? meant death. Genesis chapter 4 goes on to describe further ramifications of humanity no longer dwelling in the garden with God. God warns Cain, Adam and Eve's firstborn son, that sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. He does not take heed of this warning, and he murders his brother, a fellow image bearer of God in cold blood. Right at the end of chapter 4, it says that at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Maybe a glimpse of hope that not everyone is turning wicked and there's still a a people who are calling on Lord and worshiping him. Now for everyone's favorite chapter of the week, I am sure. Chapter 5. The one with the funny names and long lifespans. Who doesn't love a family tree? Um, Yeah, it's often easy to kind of gloss over these texts and these moments in scripture that seem a little bit strange or weird. Um, So what's going on? I mean... I think the main thing we can get from chapter five is this reiterating of this essential truth about God's creation of humankind, that he made men and women in his image, but he's also reiterating the fact that death is now a present reality for humanity outside of Eden. And you know this text has been debated for centuries on whether people live that long in the pre-flood world, but we don't need to go into details about that now. There is a, a figure in this chapter called Enoch, and his death is not recorded. And the scriptures testify to him being taken up by God and escaping natural death. And this here is also a glimpse of hope that death may not be the only end for humanity. The 10 patriarchs mentioned in Genesis chapter five is the link from creation to the flood story that is coming next. So chapter six, the first little bit of chapter six is a little bit strange again with mentions of sons of gods procreating with the daughters of men. Um, and these Nephilim, these kind of giant warrior clan people, they're all in the backdrop of the Bible as wickedness is increasing on the earth, the scriptures say. Despite the increase in evil, we are told Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. The focus of chapters 6 to 9 on Noah. And this is a part of the Bible that most of us are probably familiar with. God feels grieved over his creation, and the world will now be washed clean by judgment, apart from Noah and his family. Old Testament commentator Derek Kinder says the New Testament sees the flood as a rite of baptism, as twin expressions of judgment and deliverance, that is, the way through death into life, a picture of how the narratives in the Old Testament point to Christ and his kingdom that was yet to come. I will speak more about this in a little bit. Once the flood has subsided... God promises to never again curse the ground or destroy all living creatures, despite the inclination of the human heart to be an evil. We see this promise materialize in chapter 9, when God makes a covenant with Noah. A reminder that a covenant is a relationship between two partners who make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies um, in Covenants, they define obligations and commitments, but they're different from a contract because they're often relational and personal. God's covenant with Noah is unconditional, and his promise is accompanied with a sign of his faithfulness, the rainbow to remind future generations of this covenant. And this is gonna be an important part as we read through Genesis, God continuing to pursue humanity for a relationship. And in chapter 10 and 11, we're nearly there to chapter 14, bear with me, um, we're given another list of more family names and histories with an interesting twist in the middle with the events of the Tower of Babel. And I'm not going to say much about the Tower of Babel's story other than this event seems to describe the fruitless exploits of humanity in trying to glorify themselves um, as they try to make a tower that reaches the heavens, which is God's domain. And God once again has to intervene by scattering humanity across the earth, And towards the end of the chapter, we're introduced to Abram's family, who will be the focus of the next few chapters. At the start of chapter 12, we see God telling Abram and his father's household from the land of Ur, which is in ancient Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, to go on a journey to the land of Canaan, the future promised land. And God tells Abram that I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who sorry, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is another glimpse at God's redemption of humanity. Although the drama of God begins in a specific geographical location in Eden and is now filtering through to a man and his descendants, this shows that God's plan from the beginning of history has been to redeem all humanity across the world. This is something that the book of Genesis will illuminate over and over again. The Lord's pursuit of relationship with people, despite their turning away from him. And then there's a famine in the land, um, which caused Abraham to go to Egypt for a time, and then another kind of drama unfolds between Abraham's wife and Pharaoh, and yes, very interesting, this ancient drama. But um, chapter 13, Abraham returns to Canaan, um, and this time another issue arises. Um, regarding some land between him and his nephew Lot. Abram remained in Canaan, and Lot lived in the plains near Sodom. And then the Lord said to Abram, um, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Another promise between God and man. And finally, chapter 14, where I'm going to land today. Chapter 14 is action-packed. And in the beginning, it describes a Tolkien-like battle. You have four kings from the north who go to war with five kings from the south. For 12 years, these kings of the south were subject to Kedaleomer, this pagan king, but in the 13th year, they rebelled against him. The battle of the nine armies commenced in the Valley of Sidim, the land which now the Dead Sea covers. Unfortunately, Lot, Abraham's nephew, was living in Sodom at the time, and the four kings of the north took him and all his possessions after their victory. Abraham got wind of his nephew Lot um, being taken away, so he rallied his men and went on pursuit to try and get him back. He was successful in recovering Lot and his possessions, along with others who have been captives. After Abram defeated Kedileomer, he returned to his own land, and the king of Sodom came out to meet him. And then something interesting happens, which I will focus on. It says in verse 18, chapter 14. Are we able to get the passage on the screen, please? Thank you. It says, after Abram returned from defeating Kedileomer, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then the story continues. But we are told nothing more of this Melchizedek in the chapter of or in the book of Genesis at all. Abram meets with him, and then in verse 21, the story continues, and that's it. Not until later in the scriptures is this mysterious figure mentioned again, and I'll explain why this is both fascinating and important. Firstly, we're given a record of Melchizedek. We have seen in earlier chapters that the scribes of Genesis aren't shy in recording family histories, yet we are not told anything about which tribe or family this mysterious man is from. Secondly, his name, Melchizedek, is interesting. Melchizedek in Hebrew means my king Sedek. Sedek means justice or righteousness often, but scholars have pointed out that Sedek was also a pagan Canaanite sun god that was worshipped in the area. Thirdly, he is king of Salem, which is referenced in a city most would be familiar with, which is Jerusalem. However, Jerusalem is derived from a much older city-state called Uru Shalim, which is again a reference to a Canaanite god. So these pieces of evidence should point to this Melchizedek guy being a pagan and someone whom the text of Genesis should encourage Abraham and subsequently us to kind of avoid. Yet the text describes him as a priest of God most high, as well as describing him blessing Abraham, the patriarch of our faith. So why is Melchizedek special? As we read through the Bible, you will see him mentioned again in Psalm 110 and in the book of Hebrews. And I'm not going to touch on them now as I don't want to give you any spoilers Scripture itself, um, non-biblical Jewish texts um, in the ancient world, and also the church fathers, all seem to believe this figure, Melchizedek, appears on the scene here to point to something or someone more significant than himself. You see, the amazing thing about the scriptures is that Jesus himself, and I'm going to skip forward here for a second, um, testifies in Luke 24, after his resurrection, that the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, point to him. And we often read um, this passage kind of on or after Easter Sunday, the famous Road to Emmaus story, where a group are traveling and Jesus walks with them, but they don't recognize him in his post-resurrection state. And Luke reports that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained to them what was in the scriptures concerning himself. And after this group kind of realized what had happened, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So why did their hearts burn when he opened the scriptures to them? Because they realized the whole story of God points to Christ and his redemption of humanity. And I was listening to a podcast recently, and, and this point was kind of mentioned, which I thought was interesting. They said a lot of times Christians get accused of, um, especially by our Jewish friends and um, non-religious people, that we go to the scriptures in the Old Testament and we kind of just pillage them for stuff that sounds like Christ or sounds Christian-like, and we kind of make things up. And we, um, Nietzsche, this, the famous atheist philosopher, said that any stick of wood that shows up in the scriptures automatically becomes the cross. He's basically throwing shots at Christians saying that we take the Old Testament scriptures and we twist it for our own theology. Perhaps some people do. It's not a new accusation, but it certainly is not an accurate one. So as we read the Scriptures, let us pray that God may illuminate our hearts to the reality of his story, and may we understand that reading Scripture is an adventure where we can find treasure that points us to Christ. Christians often call this treasure, especially in the Old Testament, shadows of Christ. And Melchizedek is a shadow of Christ, and I find it exciting how we can read of such a random event here in Genesis 14, and it points us to Jesus. The text tells us that Melchizedek was priest and king of a city that later became Jerusalem. We are also told he brought out bread and wine. You may know where I'm going with this. He also blessed Abram, and because of this, Abraham offered him something, a tenth of everything, the text tells us. And this is also a good example of how we should respond to the Lord in Scripture. There's lots of examples of how we shouldn't respond to the Lord in Scripture as well. And what is really cool about our faith is that we are given so many different pictures of God in the Scriptures. Leading up to Christmas, we looked at God being a wonderful counselor, a mighty and everlasting God, and the Prince of Peace. And in today's passage, we get to see a glimpse of Christ in a different way in this ancient story. The Lord Jesus, our King and Priest, our Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, our eternal priest who in Jerusalem had poured out his body in blood the symbols of blood and wine, who has blessed Abraham's descendants of the earth with the opportunity of redemption. But instead of giving him a tenth, we have the opportunity to offer him everything. St. Cyprian of Carthage reflected on this verse in the year 258 AD, so a very long time ago, but I like what he says. He says, likewise, in the priest Melchizedek, we see the sacrament of the sacrifice of the Lord prefigured according to what the divine scriptures tell us. For who is more a priest of the Most High God than our Lord Jesus Christ, who offered sacrifice to God the Father and offered the very same thing that Melchizedek had offered, bread and wine, that is, actually, his body and blood. What a beautiful reminder from what may seem like such a simple and random story. And this is the adventure we get to go on as a church community over the next two years. We get to read and entrench ourselves in the drama of God where the redemption story of humanity in the person of Christ is screaming out at us again and again and again. If that's not motivation enough to dive into the Scriptures, I'm not sure what to tell you. And my prayer for us is that as we journey through the Bible, we may encounter Christ in a more deeper and personal way, and that we would better recognize the Melchizedek moments in Scripture that point to him. And I also pray that, you know, especially me and all of us, that we are captured by this story instead of alternative ones. And as we do that, we may love God, love church, and love others more. Amen. Thank you for listening. To find out more about Locking Castle Church, please visit our website at lockingcastlechurch.org.